Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ben and this is the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Hey family, it's Thursday, so it's time to talk some Q. This is episode 15 in season two, Living the Dream. In this season, I'll be chatting with some of the most successful barbecue entrepreneurs out there about the different types of businesses you can get into and what it takes to be successful. Now, for those of you paying attention, episode 15 means that we have come to the end of this season. But before you despair, wait until you get to know who this guest is. Today, we'll be chatting with the always incredible Jess Priles, an Aussie girl who embodies the very concept of living the dream having turned her passion for barbecue into a roaring business and is now living it up in Texas, teaching the Americans how to play their own game. If you've ever wanted a sneak peek into the life of an ABA co-founder, this is for you. So grab your favorite barbecue food and your favorite cold drink and make it a big one. We're saving the best for last, chatting with Jess Priles and saying farewell to season two. This is the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast with barbecue pitmaster Ben Arnott. How long has it been since your last confession? Local products don't get much more local than Ministry of Smoke's Smoking Woods. An Australian family-owned company specialising in native hardwoods as well as fruitwoods, Rod has never revealed his sources of his timber. But they do come from premium New South Wales and Queensland timber regions. I exclusively use Rod's products with Smoking Hot Confessions, and my favourites are his Ironbark and Applewood, and his Gigi Lump Charcoal is killer. Most exciting, Rod now produces his own range of pellets, including red wine oak barrel and Ironbark. These can be used in pellet grills and in smoker boxes in other types of barbecues. They're also great in the uni pellet pizza ovens for a delicious combination of smoke and pizza. As an added bonus, all his pellets are sold in food grade pails, so they're great for commercial operations as they can be repurposed. You can reach out to Rod on Facebook. Just search for Ministry of Smoke and shoot him a message. Alrighty, Jess, welcome to the confessional for this, the final episode of season two of the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. It's great to have you on board, and I just want to give a big thanks to uh, to everybody in the barbecue scene in Australia for everything that you do. And I just want to say that uh, first up. So thanks very much for being here. Oh, thank you. I feel like I'm the season cliffhanger. This is great. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing that I have to ask you is, what was the last thing that you barbecued? Uh, last thing that I barbecued was pastrami, actually. Oh, very nice. Was that a beef pastrami? Or I think I saw a recipe in your book for a lamb pastrami as well, didn't I? That's right. Look at you and your attention to detail. This was beef. This was just uh, brisket flat. So that a, a recipe that I was developing for a Wagyu company I work with here. So it was the second attempt, um, and it was much better than the first. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's always good to hear that uh, that you're on the up and up. So when you're cooking things like that at at uh, at home and you are developing those recipes, um, what what barbecue do you cook on personally? So I have my own smoker that. I designed with Picks and Spits. It is available locally in Australia through the Q Club in Melbourne who can ship it nationwide. Um, and it's a classic Texas offset pit, which means obviously five boxes to one side, stacked on the other end and meat sits in the middle just being bathed in smoke. And and I worked with the guys at Picks and Spits to develop just – I didn't mess too much with the core design of the smoker. 
The one thing that I changed was the size of the firebox because that gives you greater control over your temperature and um, where you're actually lighting a fire. But I put a whole lot of other details on there as well, like extending the depth of the shelves so that they're more practical for a tray full of brisket, for example. And there's a prep shelf on there and there's an area that you can hang butcher paper so you can roll the brisket and what have you. So... um, that's called the JP Signature Edition Pits and Spit Smoker, and I do all of my cooking on that. I have a ceramic as well. I've got a PK Grill Classic and 360. Um, all of these were, were provided to me, but I only keep and talk about the ones that I've actually enjoyed to, like cooking on. So there have been a few that have come through that <laughs> have been generously donated to friends. But um, I also have a pit barrel cooker. But... I find, yeah, my, all, I don't smoke on anything other than my offset. Um, and I, actually today I went and picked up a brand new grill that I also designed with Pits and Spits. That's not going to be commercially available. It was just sort of like a a wish list item for me. Um, and basically it, it's a fire pit that has a grill on top, which isn't revolutionary. Most of them do have at least some expanded metal so you can grill on the fire. The difference is um, I put a, an upgraded grill grate on there. I increased the size of the height of the pit so it's more ergonomic. And there's a few other details that have more to do with it being a grill first, fire pit second. Um, it's got a 36-inch cook surface. So if you want to, like, put a pan on there and do some steaks and do some veg, like, there's heaps of room. But most of all, for me, I was sort of thinking about, like, Santa Maria-style grills, and it didn't make sense to have a a, a vertical raise because when you move vertically over heat, it's still extremely hot. Rather, this swivels um, horizontally, so you can have much, much greater heat control. Um, You know, if something's too hot, just immediately, you know, move it off the heat with the grate. So I'm really looking forward to cooking on that. And I think, I know there are folks out there that want, I'm lucky enough that I have more grills than I ever thought I would in my yard because I've been, you know, partnering with certain companies to cook on them. But I'm sort of getting to this, a place where, honestly, I think between the smoker and this other grill that I've just sort of developed, um, if it works the way that I expect it to work, I, I don't see myself needing too much more than that. So we'll see. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. I'll be... Um definitely uh, looking out for those photos on Instagram. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, I did a little sneak peek, but I'm sure the only problem is it's freezing cold right now in Texas, so it's not the best grilling weather, but I do have to burn it in and, and seal the top because it's kind of raw metal. But um, So I'll definitely be standing outside at some stage and you'll see some stuff on Insta. <laughs> With some nice big uh, puffy coats and things on. Yeah, all my hunting gear. That's the warmest stuff I own. Oh, great. Oh, there you go. So what's the weather like in, in Texas at, uh, I don't know, say the end of February? Uh, right now, at the end of February? Oh, I can't imagine what I'm asking. <laughs> February can go either way. Um, February can sort of be starting to get warm. Everyone's like, oh, I can't believe it. It's so Texas right now. Uh, or it can be like um, still quite cold. So well, what I guess what I'm saying is pack what you can. But we do have some ridiculously cheap stores here as well. So if you forget to pack anything, we've got you covered. Don't worry. Ah, uh, sounds good. I'm I'm glad I hedged my bets and rented a jeep. <laughs> oh, you did not. What with the with the roof down? 
No, my, uh, my, my, no, oh no, sorry, no, no, no. It was a, it was a toss up between a, uh, I was looking at a convertible Ford Mustang or a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Oh yeah, you'd never, I would never get a Mustang in February. No, no, someone told me that there's a good chance there'll be black ice on the road and I went, mmm, Jeep. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know about black ice, but you definitely won't want the top down. Oh, right. Oh, I'm, I'm glad I made that uh, that right choice then. So when I think of people who are living the dream, which is the name of this uh, season, uh, you're pretty much at the top of the list. Born in Australia, living in Texas, jetting all over the world, making a living out of barbecue. Where did it all start for you? It actually started with a my first trip to Texas, and thank you, that's very kind, and I appreciate every day, by the way, that I'm living the dream. It's not lost on me, don't worry. Um, it started with my first visit to Texas, uh, which was probably like nine years ago now, and I had my first taste of Texas barbecue, and as most of your listeners will know, it's just such a phenomenal, different experience. It was really a religious experience, and that's what kind of kicked everything off for me. Um, and yeah, from there, it all, it, it was all like very much organic. Um, the desire to eat more of this barbecue and keep traveling back to Texas kind of led to me writing about the food that I was eating in Austin because it was the kind of blogs had just started and I'd always enjoyed creative writing and photography. So it was kind of more just a creative outlet for myself. And if someone read it, then great. And at the same time, I was starting to post on there. Barbecue was starting to become popular in Australia. I was really enjoying sort of being a translator between what was happening in Texas and what was happening back at home. And then I really just got thirsty for knowledge. So wait a second, why are the briskets in Australia so different um, from what we're finding in the States? And I remember sort of being, you know, one of the first people to actually walk into a U.S. butcher, get them to break down a packer cut and then try and explain that back home so we could figure that out. And then, of course, when you're a layperson, just like, you know, I'm sure there are so many people in barbecue in Australia that I'm sure can empathize with this. Like, I'm, the ABA group is filled with like, hey, I've got this brisket, will it work? <laughs> you know, um, from people having the first time brisket experience. And once you start figuring out that it's a lot to do with breed and age and, and butchering between the countries and genetics, I was sort of inadvertently learning all of this information that was just you know, generally helpful for me cookery. So I applied it to, you know, all live fire cooking and grilling and steaks and what have you. And I'd always love to cook. I certainly always love to eat. And I think it's just one of those things, you know, Jay, Jay and Adam are, are similar to people to me. Jay's just really, um, with Jay Beaumont from Meatstock and the Australasian Barbecue Alliance, he, you know, he's creative like me. He's much better on the, on the editing tools, but I'm handy on Photoshop and, and Illustrator and stuff, which has helped. And we're both just really hard workers and passionate, so it's ads. And I just bring them up because if you look at how far they've come in a few short years, it's a similar thing. I think that we all found something that we're passionate about and then there are just certain people that I think have, have this have a drive. Um that pushes them to other things. So I'm just lucky that um, I guess my story has resonated with people or my cooking has resonated with people because it's much less about what I look like or who I am than the food that I produce. Um, And that's what I've been really focused on in the past couple of years. 
Yeah, absolutely. I can tell from watching your picks that the focus is absolutely on the meat products themselves. So with the the shots of you presenting at the meat university and all that sort of stuff, that's um that really does come through with uh, with what you're putting out there. You mentioned Jay and Adam in the ABA before. Can you tell us a little bit more about the story of of how uh, all that came about? Yeah, so honestly, five, six years ago in Australia, there would have been a handful of people, maybe 10 countrywide, that understood what smoking was and had a decent knowledge of it and were related to it or practicing it somehow, like somehow related to it. Um, one of those people was Paul Wright-Meyer from Silver Creek Smokers, and he was one of the only people who was just really doing it the right way. And, and I remember eating his food and thinking, holy moly, this is exactly what it tastes like in Texas. And I was probably the only other person, aside from a few people who were doing it in their backyard just for, out of interest, who had a very public profile just because of, I had a website that I was talking about. So... I started kind of becoming this media reference for people. So when Jay decided to put on his first um, Port Macquarie um, barbecue wars, he was sort of looking for someone because he didn't actually have that much experience in barbecue back when. None of us did. Like, even me with my cooking, I knew more about it before I started cooking, you know. And then after a few challenges from a few rotten eggs – I, I sort of said, right, well, I'll show you and started to cook and that worked out. So, you know, how's that for motivation? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, they, yeah, just just use use that the hater energy to your benefit is a great business tip. But, um, <laughs> yeah, Jay was just looking for someone who could kind of MC, who knew about barbecue to give the event some credibility. And I guess I was one of the only people out there at the time. So we connected. He flew me up to court. I was involved with that event. We had 60 teams because by that stage, there were enough people coming out of the woodwork that they wanted to get involved, even though most of them was their first time, um, you know, having a crack at cooking, let alone doing it at a competition. And um, off the back of the success of that, we decided to um, form a sanctioning body, which was also really just supposed to be an an educational body at the time. So we we roped in ads because he had experience as a city councilman, so we thought um, he'd be a great tiebreaker because Jay and I butt heads on a bunch of stuff. <laughs> and ended up, he ended up turning into the, the GM and has done a tremendous job um, just because he's got such great vision for it. So that's how we all came together and and they've just taken it. Obviously, I can't do a lot um, once I emigrated, which was within the year of ABA forming. Um so I can't do a lot, although I represent ABA over here um, with a great deal of pride, but they have done an outstanding job. Yeah, they definitely have. There'd, um, there'd be no barbecue scene uh, in Australia without the ABA. So, you know, that's that's a kudos and thanks to the three of you for all that you've done there. So you um, clearly have a lot of arrows in your quiver. Can you fill the listeners in on all the different things that you do? Oh, man, I'm getting better at this because I used to be asked that question and just draw a blank and I was pan- I'd panic and think, surely I know I work from like kind of the second I get up until well into dinner time. So how am I that busy and not able to define it? And a lot of it is that um, 
it's admin from just running a business that just takes time because, you know, send this email and write this invoice and, and edit this photo and now edit this video, et cetera, et cetera. But basically, um, I run my website, JessFiles.com, and I publish a recipe every week on there. Um, I do all my food styling and photography as well, which takes up a bit of time and obviously write the posts. And um, on the back of that is all the social media that's involved with me, with the website and and that leads to different things that I'm involved in. So, for example, classes, appearances, speaking, um, and all that takes, you know, organizing and promoting and what have you. And then I have Hardcore Carnival, which is my seasoning line, um, which is also has some merchandise as well. And that's been more popular than I ever anticipated, and I'm so thankful for that. I have a book, Hardcore Carnival, which has been out in Australia for a while, which comes out in the U.S., in February, I have that smoker that I mentioned from Pits and Spits. I've got a new rub coming out next month that I'm working on. Um, I'm looking on, uh, looking at developing products. I'm, I've just imported this steak fork from Brazil that I now have to find out how to get more into the country because they sold better than I ever thought they would. And I'm trying to really concentrate on developing and introducing products that don't current, currently exist for carnivals. Um, so everything that I do, I try to make it really innovative and really useful and not just, you know, another pork rub kind of thing. Um, yeah, so I'm kept pretty busy. Um, I'm also a full-time uh, ambassador for Gerber Knives, so I do a lot of work with them. Um, yeah, and there's, there's a lot of stuff. I'm sure if I sat here and kept racking my brain, oh, and I do this, oh, and I do that, oh, by the way, I'm doing this. Yeah. Um, I've got my finger in a lot of pies, I guess. Yeah, I was um, going to ask about the, the Gerber Knife ambassadorship, if that's the right word. Um, how did that yeah. come about and, and what does that involve, being a brand ambassador? Well, I'm glad you used that terminology because I guess um, it would be a great time to just clarify a couple of things. Uh, the word, The term brand ambassador is so often used I see it particularly in Instagram biographies um, <laughs> or Instagram bios. Um, and I think that people have – I mean, it's one of those things where it genuinely has taken on a new meaning because enough people have used it now. But it's nearly kind of like if you're a Metallica fan, um, I feel like Metallica after the Black Album needs a different name because I want to be able to say I'm a Metallica fan for the old stuff. <laughs> you no, know, like and the new stuff is different. So um, I know that that was coming to make sense at one point, Dan. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so, I th- so a brand ambassador, in its truest, honest sense, is somebody who is paid, usually quite well, by a company to represent that company's product to the exclusion of all others. So, for example, if we were talking about beer, if I was a brand ambassador for, let's say, BB. I would be paid by VB to talk about, use, promote, endorse, blah, 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 VB at the exclusion of all other beers. Um, That's why you pay someone to be an ambassador for your brand. It has come to seem, it has seemingly come to mean that brand ambassador means that it's kind of code word for that person is willing to accept freebies or paid relationships from companies. So I've seen people who are brand ambassadors and they'll talk about like five different grills and 
you know, six different rubs and a bunch of different sources, and that's not what a brain MSR is. Um, so, um, well, what, not what it is when I say it. So I'm paid by Gerber. I'm one of only 13 ambassadors. Um, Remy Warren, Jason Aldean, who's a country music star, and Bear Grylls, uh, some of the others. Um, and they pay us to promote, use, and endorse their products. Um, I, for me, it was a huge deal because I didn't ever think that an everyday carry knife brand would be interested in what I'm doing. Um, you know, you think for the obvious things like grill companies and rub companies and what have you, but a lot of the uh, a lot of the stuff makes a lot of sense. They have a, a filleting knife that I use all the time for butchery. They have a huge hunting line that I use all, all the time, both when I'm hunting, but also a replaceable blade knife, which is amazing for trimming ribs because of the detail. Um, and then, you know, when I moved to Texas, I started to, to carry a knife, um, an everyday carry, they call it here. It's all like a tool. So... Once you're once you're allowed to carry a knife, and you do, you find yourself reaching for it for so many things. It's not about stabbing. It's not about personal protection. That's sort of I was going to ask, benefit. how rough is Texas? Yeah, it's not about that at all. <laughs> everyone will carry a knife because it's just like a, it's just like a. I was going to say dude thing to do, but I do it, so it's obviously <laughs> unisex. But <laughs> it's it's just what you do. You drive a truck, and you have boots, and you carry a knife, and you use it to to. I mean, I use it today. I had, I had for, the, for the most ridiculous purpose. I had a, a string come off my couch cushion, and I had my knife in my pocket. So out it comes, cleaned it up, and that's it. I've used it for, I don't know. I used it in Mexico to cut a thing out of my bikini because I had it there. Like it's, this is how you just use it. I'm using all my my most recent references for these knives, which aren't all at all related. But that's that's what that's why we call it everyday carry. Like. It just becomes this thing of like, oh yeah, I've got the knife, I can use it for that. But they uh, they're working with me particularly because of the carnivore angle. So of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to clarify something that you said before that I I didn't quite understand. So a brand ambassador promotes that brand at the exclusion of all others for that same type of product or all other products. Period. So for example, if you're a Gerber knife ambassador, can you still promote? you know, the big green egg or something because they're different types of products. You can. you No, you can. It's for that product. And the reality is there's no hard and fast rule, which is why it's now come to mean something else. Because the idea is, for example, you know, if, if you are a brand ambassador, like if you look at Kim Kardashian, she's a brand ambassador for a million different things, okay? If you look at... Um, I'm trying to think of, I haven't been in Australia, so I don't know who's being used for what. But if you think of anyone who's the face of a product, traditionally when you are a brand ambassador, and I was a brand ambassador for McCormick in Australia for a little while as well, um, when you do that, you the idea is that you're probably not going to have too many more relationships because otherwise you're just going to be a walking billboard. You know what I mean? Mm. So, so traditionally it was that you partnered with one or two or three, you know, sort of max companies. So, you know, this person does my my hunting gear and, this, you know, I'm with Yeti Coolers and I'm with this and I'm with whoever. And they're the people who paid you and they're the people who give you products and, and you represent them. But you're talking serious celebrity status if you're a paid brand ambassador for, for more than one company, I think. Um, because your endorsement 
like, are you going to believe me if I start flogging a million different things? Like, oh, here my jocks are sponsored by Haynes. You know, like, come on, who cares? And there's a difference between being sponsored and being a brand ambassador, and that's usually just donated products versus getting paid. But traditionally, a brand ambassador is someone who is paid to represent that product to the exclusion of all other products in that category. Because why would I? Why would anyone pay someone to talk about a grill when they then go and talk about other grills as well? Doesn't make sense. That's a very uh, interesting distinction between sponsorship and uh, and brand ambassadorship. I think that's sort of the point that we're at here in Australia, sort of clarifying that distinction as the scene grows. So I think that's going to be interesting to watch how that pans out here in Australia. Well, the other thing that Australians need to be aware of, which a lot of them aren't, are C laws. So the FTC is what governs them here in the States, but there are massive, massive um, disclosure rules that the C has put in place, usually for bloggers, um, that I've, I see a lot of Aussie barbecue teams that obviously have relationships, but... That what it literally means is that every time you post something that is sponsored, so if you're posting um, a grill and a knife that is that is sponsored, you can't just post a photo of them and say, "Damn, I love these." You need to then write, you know, hashtag sponsored. There there are disclosures that you have to do for everything, even if it's just given to you. Um, so yeah, that's something. I guess that people would want to bear in mind because you can get fined for it. Really, that's interesting. Yeah, it's it's blogging disclosure. I mean, like I I, I don't. It it started because of bloggers sort of going to restaurants and being invited to media meals or being sent things, especially like fashion bloggers and stuff like that. You know, they sent a million things. The whole point of this new world is that that people are influencers. I think that's the word they're looking for instead of brand ambassador, that they're an influencer. Mm. So they're happy to work with products because the, the presumption is that they have influence over the other people through social media. But the thing is, you know, what the ACCC are trying to try, – and the, and the FTC are trying to um, make clear here, just like when you read through a magazine and you'll see sometimes at the very top it says like paid advertisement or paid promotion – um, where someone sort of actually put an ad in to make it look like it's part of the magazine, but it's not, you have the right as a consumer to know that that's an ad. So why shouldn't everyone that follows a certain barbecue team, let's say, who are doing really well, or ABA or whoever, or me or whoever it is, why shouldn't you have the right to know when I'm being paid to talk about something? Because it's obviously going to be influencing what I say about it. I'm going to be Googling the whole, all those things right as soon as we're finished because I think I need to uh, clean up my own website a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's mainly for social media. On websites, it's just there, there's a disclosure as well. But, yeah, it's a really, really interesting place that, that um, and, and it's a really interesting time and there's a lot of interesting stuff happening around that. But if you think about it, it does make perfect sense and that's why I um, say no to probably – 50 to 60% of stuff that is offered to me. Oh, wow. Yeah, because um, I don't want to turn my feed into a walking, like, you know, ad coupon thing uh, where everything is like, you know, sponsored, ad, sponsored, ad, sponsored. I don't really want to do that. I want to have genuine engagement with people and share 
you know, meat and cooking and not just flog. Like, surely you've seen, Ben. Let me ask you a question now. Uh-oh. Have you seen a product that come onto the market and suddenly you see everybody at once talking about it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Why do you think that is? Uh, probably because they've sent out about 300 free samples. Right, except that most people won't actually realize that, and that's a required disclosure. Because mm. you're being you, – you, you're just creating this free ad campaign for this company. So, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I'd, I always have a rule about when I get work done on my car, whoever works on my car is not to put stickers on my car. So, you know how when you, like, you, you go and get tires on it and they go and put a sticker on the back window, tires by such and such. I'm always like, nope, get that rubbish off my car. You don't want to be a walking ad, ad for them because they didn't give you a deal. Well, particularly because I've already paid them to do the job. I'm not going to then turn around and do their advertising for them. Right. But happens all the time on Instagram, so why do we see that differently? Yeah. <laughs> Very good points. Especially with repost accounts. I'm not going to even get started about it, but oh, think yeah. about those accounts that exist, you know, purely by using other people's products, and then they ultimately do it to sell their own. It's the, the, the gross undervaluation of the worth of intellectual property, thanks to things like Instagram, constantly astounds me. Yeah, it's kind of the, the dark side of social media, isn't it? Mm. All right, so I've, I've noticed, um, and, and you mentioned this before, that you seem to have two brands, the personal brand in Jess Priles and a traditional brand in Hardcore Carnivore. What made you decide to have both and what are the distinctions between the two? Um, Jess Piles was first, um, just because, and I'm, as I mentioned, it was organic. It was the, the blog was called Burger Mary, which is, I'm sure a few people will remember, because I was writing about burgers and Bloody Marys in the very beginning, because that's what I was eating mainly when I was coming to Austin, and then I added in a barbecue element. Um, and before I moved, I decided, like, everyone thought my name was Mary, which became quite frustrating, especially in social situations. But um, I decided to rebrand with my own name and just kind of see what happens, um, which helped a great deal. And then when I had the idea to put out Hardcore Carnival Black, which is my first rub, um, I'd been aware um, I'd been aware of the use of activated charcoal in food, um, but I've always wanted to create an MSG-free, um, gluten-free product, and I thought that I sort of might be onto something with that. Um, and it didn't really make sense for it to be Jess Pryles' Black Rub, um, it sort of needed a name and I, I know I've just always had natural acumen for marketing, which I'm really, really grateful for. So I knew that it needed to be standalone on its own, um, for people to sort of, and even to this day, people pick it up and they know who I am, but they don't know that that's my rub, <laughs> um, which is fine with me. Um, yeah, so I think the rub deserves its own name. And then honestly, what's happened in the past year has been a really interesting transition, which is people don't know exactly what it is I've that I do, even though I've just explained it to you. So people are sort of really uncomfortable with like, well, is she a blogger? No. Is she a meat expert? I guess, but what does that mean? And all this kind of stuff. So when people started saying it's just from Hardcore Carnival, which as you even pointed out is the traditional brand, everyone sort of became more comfortable. Like, oh, okay, it's a woman who has a meat company. So now I feel all like, oh, that makes sense in my brain. So they've sort of they they exist 
they coexist and they complement one another. But obviously, you know, it's not always that hardcore carnivore is going to go out and do a and do a um, an event, but just prowls night or vice versa. So, and and sometimes it might be just prowls of hardcore carnivore. So they they really do. Um, there's a synergy there between them, but um, they can be kept separate as well. Right. Yeah. So it it allows. Um independence when you need it that's that's a, a great idea for for flexibility of of branding so so what's coming down the line for you uh, i have a i have a new rub coming out in january that i can't talk too much about yet but you should see it very very soon it's called hardcore carnival amplify and it's a msg free and gluten free just like always um uh, rub that is designed to add a savory kick to whatever you add it to. The primary ingredient, along with, of course, salt, which all rubs have, is actually chicken fat powder. Um, and you can add it to an existing rub that you really like. It's just this bold, savory boost. So you can add it to existing rubs. You can use it as a popcorn sprinkle. You can mix it with sour cream to make a dip. Um, I'm really excited to see how people will use this because there's so many different applications for it. Um, so it's basically a, an MSG-free, all-natural flavor booster that has a really umami profile. Um, and especially that that ability to be added to existing rubs without kind of corrupting them and just sort of boosting them uh, is something that I'm really looking forward to seeing what different people come up with. I think it could also be pretty huge in the comp world as far as the finishing dust too. So, yeah, it's something that you can keep on your table if you want to and just, you know, add a table side for, for an extra hit. This is Adam from the ABA and you're listening to Smoking Hot Confessions. If you're looking to get behind an Australian company that gets behind Australians, you need to check out Pitt Brothers Barbecue. They're a Brisbane-based business that are known for supporting our return servicemen and women. They have three pre-blended rubs and 15 individual ingredients, making it super easy for you to create your own unique taste sensation. My personal favorite is the rosemary, lemon, and sea salt rub. It's sensational on chicken wings with a sweet barbecue sauce. They also stock premium Gigi lump charcoal, which is grown and cooked in Queensland. While 2017 has been a big year, 2018 is gonna be even bigger. They're launching a custom-designed offset smoker, three premium gravies, and are working with competition teams to develop some special new rub blends, such as Porkapalooza by the Smoke and Sappers. You can keep up with all the Pit Brothers news on Facebook and Instagram by following at PitBroBBQ. Right now, they're offering an exclusive deal for you Smoking Hot Confessions listeners. Head on over to pitbrothersbarbecue.com.au, that's P-I-T-B-R-O-T-H-E-R-S-B-B-Q, and use the word confessions at checkout for a 10% discount. Once again, use confessions at checkout to get your 10% discount. Now, Jess, most listeners will already know about your incredible new book, uh, Hardcore Carnival. We mentioned it just a little bit earlier, and uh, the American listeners are going to know about it um, very soon, probably about the same time that this is released. Um, In this segment, I'd like to chat with you about being an author and all that that entails. So firstly, congrats on publishing a book. Um, Even in this digital age, you're not legit until you're in print. So that's got to be a good feeling. 
Um, how does it feel to be a published author and what has the response been like from the Australian barbecue scene? It was... So there's this thing that happens with the Australian barbecue scene, which is completely expected considering I'm an expat now. But it's sort of like there's this core group of people who've been there since the beginning that, you know, that know me or I've met in person or sort of like, oh, barbecue queen or, you know, the, the founder of – the co-founder of, of the barbecue movement in Australia. Certainly not the founder, but, you know, a, a, a person who had a hand in it. Just similar, I guess, to the very kind intro you gave me. But, of course, the longer that I'm away, even though you'd think that I'd still have, um, you know, reach, the longer that I'm away from Australia, the more there are people joining the scene that have no idea who I am, which is fine, <laughs> um, especially because, obviously, my first, um, I guess, port of call with new fans is going to be here in Texas, just because that's how the ripple effect works. But... Um, so I don't really know. I, I've had some beautiful messages from folks in Australia. Um, I had a lot of messages over Christmas from people who got it for Christmas, which was super cool. Um, and it was really cool when I came back to actually launch the book to see it in David Jones and Woolies and, and Big, w, oh, Big W and a couple other places too and, and just, you know, regular bookstores. And that was super exciting. So... Um, the thing is, I like I stay off a lot of the social media groups just because um, they're notorious for sort of like trolling and devolving and people getting in online arguments. And honestly, I have so much to do with maintaining my own pages anyway that I often just don't have the, the kind of time that you need to put into them to not kind of just sit on the edge and, and misinterpret things. So I didn't get to see much of direct kind of chatter about the book, but the stuff that came to me um, directly was all really, really positive. And, and yeah, it feels amazing to be a published author. Yeah, definitely. I can, uh, I can relate to that feeling of walking into a store and seeing a book on a shelf. I, um, I published a couple of books when I was living in South Korea and to walk into the shop and see your name on a book on a shelf, there's, there's just nothing quite like it. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you walk us through the process of becoming an author? Yeah, look, I, I it was something that I was approached for by a Jill Duplay, who's a very famous food writer in Sydney, um, and she's published in Melbourne too, and she works for a very big newspaper there. And and her job is to work for um, Alan and Unwin or Murdoch Books, who I've signed with, to kind of identify, especially in the food world, She's kind of a scout. And when at a certain point she reached out to me and said, you know, and that's not guaranteed, that's just her thinking that it might be the right time to show me to the publishers and see what's up. So she went into that. We came up with a concept together. I came back to Australia. I met with the publishers. Um, they told me they were going to offer me a deal and it kind of went from there. Um, I know that sounds easy. It's easy because I got found, I suppose, but I think that's mostly how it happens that a publisher recognizes someone and comes after them. I think there's very, the other way it works is that you get a literary agent and they work with you to, on a manuscript that they then shop around. But literary agents are, uh, are just as difficult. They reject nearly everybody because they only want to sell what they think they can sell. Of course. Really, really well. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. 
I was lucky that Jill decided that it was my time and I was lucky that Murdoch decided it was a great time for a meat book and that they liked my recipes and my ideas and my story. Um, but, uh, you know, at, at, at its core, I think it's because I'd worked my butt off um, to get good at what I was doing and and that's why they thought it was time, I suppose. Like, I got an email this morning from someone in New Zealand who's like, Oh, I see you've got a book out. Um, could you direct me to some publishers for, you know, how I could do this? And, and I don't know what your experience was then, but, like, I know from them selling the book, cause the Australian publisher had to then sell the book into the U.S. Um, and that was that was a nail-biting process in itself, you know? Like, as as much as you think, you know, a lot of people passed on it. Obviously, it got... Um, taken in the end and and we had a few people interested but it's really nerve-wracking um because the publishing market is brutal so it's not that easy to get a pretty reasonable advance because i guess that's the other thing books work by you get paid in advance which is a certain amount of money and then if your book makes that money back then you'll be paid above that advance so most people work on the basis that that advance is all they're going to get, just in case, unless you're Nigella or Jamie. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, – I don't know if I would have done it for less than a certain amount. I'm sure, I know there's a lot of publishing houses that are probably willing to give out deals for, for peanuts, and then you have to decide if it's your – like, for me, it was, well, I'd rather use those 100 recipes on my website for the next two years, yeah. you know? Um so yeah, there's a, there's there's different levels and different grades, but I'm I'm really thankful to be with a pretty renowned publishing house, and and I'm so excited to see how this book does in the states as well and what happens. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point that you just raised there. So if you um, wrote a recipe for that book, are you then not able to use it on the website, oh, and vice versa? So like, can you take a recipe that you previously published and put it into an upcoming book? It depends on your contract. So for me, I knew that I had some really like core recipes on the website that needed to be in a book, like how to make bacon. So, but usually they require 100% new content because the publisher will own it. It's a very, very, very rare that you will get to own the content, uh, the copyright of your book. Um, you, you'd have to be a multi, you know, multi-million celeb to have the negotiation rights to be able to do that. Um, and so I ended up negotiating that I could have X amount of recipes that already exist on the website, but I kind of like retested them and, and zhuzhed them up a little bit. Um, just because, like I said, I thought they were all core to the basic book. It wasn't that I was trying to get away with content, but yeah, the rest has to be original. And now those recipes are owned, um, by the publisher. But the funny thing about recipes is you only have to make like one change to, one ingredient and and it's considered a new recipe. Oh, very interesting. So that's the that's the legal definition of a new recipe, is it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's not that simple, but um, you can't copyright recipes for, for that reason because I can change it from half a teaspoon to a teaspoon of chili powder and that's now a new recipe. Oh, that's so, fascinating. I think, I think if I put out another book called Yardcore, you know, Yarnivore, and did that with every single recipe, I'd probably be, you know, in, in a bit of trouble. So it's a very gray area. Mm. 
puts a new light on all these um, different uh, websites and things that seem to have all these strikingly similar recipes on them. Yeah, and the other thing is, you know, it's really hard to control that content too because on the one hand, you know, there are a lot of food blogs that recreate recipes that they found in cookbooks and then publish the recipe, which the the cookbook company, the, the publisher wants you to do because it's ultimately promoting that if someone likes that recipe, they may like the book, they may buy the book. So it's, it, it's, it's a, a real double-edged sword. Um, and on the other hand, there are people who, you know, publish recipes publish those recipes for content, again, maybe just to monetize. So, yeah. Mm. So how long does it take to go from concept to release? Uh, I had a uh, disturbingly short lead time. (laughs) (laughs) Usually you would have, I would say, even up to two years, um, probably usually around a year. Six months of that book is... Six months of that time is just public, like just how long it takes to get printed and shipped and and color treated and all of the technical stuff. Um, I had three months, which is insane, insanely short. I had three months from the time I signed a book deal to hand the manuscript in. So my life for those next three months was just like chained to my kitchen, um, coming up with recipes and testing them over and over and over again. And then I flew to Australia to shoot the photos, which was also perilous and fun. So fun fact, yeah, all of those photos in the book were taken in eight days in a professional photography studio that was a studio first and a kitchen second. Um, Anthony Swoboda from Southern Boys Barbecue, who's now living in Memphis but was a Melbourneian, um, had to help me bring, like he brought his smokers over to like the tiny courtyard of the studio because I didn't have a smoker in Australia because I live in Texas, and um, for the first week, the oven was also broken. Like, the thermostat was off, and we, it took us about four days to realize it. And through all of that, uh, we managed to photograph, I think it's like 80 recipes or something like that. Oh, my God. Wow. I can't get over the fact that you had 90 days to come up with 100 recipes. That's a massive workload. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. It was like clean your schedule. Yeah, no, yeah, no doubt. Um, so, just getting back to uh, you, you're talking about the the food styling and the photography. Did you do the food styling yourself, or did you work with a food stylist? No, so for that there was a food stylist. Um, her name was Lee, Lee Blaylock, and she was awesome. She's a Kiwi. Um, she. The, the main reason that you want a food stylist, I mean, my main reason most authors, most authors would is because just because you're a recipe developer doesn't mean you're, you have any experience. I'm lucky because I have to do it for my website, so I'm probably a little bit ahead of the, the curve where that where it comes to that. Um, but they also have a bunch of props that you need, uh, as well as you know styling tips and tweezers, and it's less that traditional food styling you hear about where it's like, oh, we use PVA instead of glue or PVC or whatever it's called, Um, (laughs) glue instead of milk. Um, Or, yeah, those aren't really cornflakes. They're actually pieces of cardboard because they look like cornflakes, you know. It was all real food. It was all cooked by me. She just has a great idea for, hey, this this piece of bread should be torn because it looks like it's being eaten or this, this background is the one that we should use and we should pair it with this bowl and that kind of stuff. So, Oh, that's fascinating. So it's kind of like having a, a personal designer or something. 
Yeah, and usually they work with the photographer to sort of capture the shot and, um, and yeah, it's, it's what makes it feel more cohesive. Mm. One of my favorite recipes that I've seen in the book is the peanut butter and jelly chicken wings because they basically remind me of Elvis Presley. Um, where did you draw mm. inspiration from for your recipes? <sighs> you know, my biggest draw is actually eating out and um, traveling and, and trying other chefs' sort of interpretations of ingredients. I also have a subscription to a bunch of food magazines um, just to try and be like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Mm, I, don't, oh, I haven't thought about blood orange in a while. How would I use that, you know, or, or seeing what's available in the grocery store? Um, but this was as simple as, you know, I, I've been – okay. it's such a beloved recipe, that one. I've gotten a little bit of flack from people who are – I guess kind of food, more food snobby that they think it's a bit of a gimmick. But the concept for that came born of the idea of, you know, half thinking about Asian, like, caramelized wings, half thinking about satay and thinking, well, I can actually combine those together and give it a, a cute name, but it worked. It's that concept of salty, sweet, sour, you know, with some fresh lime juice or something over the top. Uh, it's the balance of food, so that's why it works. It's not because it's supposed to be a peanut butter, and, you know, a waffle sandwich or whatever it is. It just happens to be the concept of salty, creamy, and sweet um, that those two ingredients bring together. For me, it's just fun too. And, and you know, if you if you can't have a bit of fun with it, then you know, what's the point? That's actually very true. Yeah. So, um, say someone's out there and. Uh, just sort of circling back to what we we're talking before about um, about publishers and contracts and stuff. When people um, are looking at contracts with publishers, what should they look for? How do you tell a good contract from a not so good contract? I'm I'm definitely in no position to answer that. I ended up getting a literary agent publishing contracts. I'm pretty good with contracts, and publishing contracts are a completely different beast. There's different rules. There's different. Um, levels of acceptability, there's different rules about royalties. So if you're in a position where you have access to um, a book deal, either seek an agent or seek a literary uh, entertainment attorney lawyer and absolutely make sure you're getting a good deal. Ah, very solid advice. Consult uh, consult a legal expert. I should have thought of that before I wrote the question. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so what was the hardest thing about uh, about producing the cookbook and how did you overcome it? The hardest thing was that photography shoot. The hardest thing was flying to Australia to a kitchen I'd never seen and it was like induction cooking as well. And if you've ever cooked on an induction stovetop, they worked completely differently to gas. And having to produce the best version of every single one of these recipes in a brand new kitchen with equipment I've never seen in, in eight days. That was terrifying. I have no doubt. Yeah, that sounds, uh, sounds intimidating just listening to the story. So how did you get through it? Just, just uh, nose down, bum up and plow through? Yeah, it's the exact same thing we were talking about earlier with the you know, perseverance and work ethic. You just, you, exactly what you said. You make it work because it has to work. And, and it's not just going to be acceptable, it's going to be great. Mm. So then what was the easiest thing about producing the cookbook and, and why was it easy? Um, the easiest thing, some of the recipes that were coming to me, um, 
some of them that were just for fun to I'd say the recipes that came together really easily in my head and then worked out the very first time I tested them. It was like, ah, okay, kick. Um, you know, pickle brine chicken nuggets were one of those because what I did was I'd, I'd done stuff with pickle brine before. It made sense that it would sound fun with chicken nuggets. And then my grandmother makes chicken schnitzel using those cornflake crumbs, so I knew that they're such a fun coating and that they could work together to produce this, like, insane, crunchy, salty, um, you know, pickle brined piece of goodness and that it was pretty much going to work. And it did. You still there? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. I, I, it just, it, it just, the phone went dead silent. I thought it, the, the call had dropped out. Cool. Um, okay. Um, where are we? All righty. So, overall, then, how would you rate being an author as a profession? I don't think anyone becomes so no one unless <laughs> unless you're Stephen King um, or like I said you know Nigella or Jamie. There's very very few people that are making serious money off cookbooks. Be, having a cookbook is like being on TV. Um, you don't make a whole lot of money on TV until you're one of those huge names that can command it. But what it does for you is give you a level of exposure and give you credibility, just like you were saying, having a name in print. So now when I meet people, I get to say, I'm a published author. And they're like, oh, I see. And it makes them, you know, seem them all important. <laughs> Instead of like, yes, I have my own website. that I insist a lot of people go to, like 300,000 people a month, but it's much easier to say I'm a published author. So that's really what it does for you. I don't think that there's anybody who's making a living off being a, an author, especially in cookbooks. You're listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast with barbecue pitmaster Ben Arnott. Our modern society is in a revolution at the moment. After years of exploring how we can use technology to better process our foods, we're now heading back the other way, realizing that traditional farming produces better tasting and healthier food. At the forefront of this movement is Pure Meats Robina. Not only are they a low and slow specialist butcher, they pride themselves on stocking ethically sourced organic products to help you give your family the delicious, proper balanced diet they need. Their meats come direct from Aussie farmers and are broken from carcass on site. Not only that, but all their products are made on site. From healthy, ready-to-cook stir-fries for the time poor, to my favourite, the smoked crocodile cabana. And for you competitors out there, I can tell you that the quality of the competition meat is not only outstanding, but most importantly, it's consistently outstanding. So do yourself a favour and head to facebook.com slash puremeatsrobina to find out more. Alrighty, Jess, we've got some fantastic uh, listener questions here for segment three, and... Um, They've really put their heads together and come up with some great questions for you. And uh, so if you're ready, let's get into it. Let's roll. Hi, this is Jared. Jess, how did you manage to come from living in Australia to moving to to Texas of all places and becoming so famous and big in the US considering the history of barbecue over there? Hey, Jared, that's a great question. Um, it was a very natural move, and it happened because I visited Texas, ate barbecue, um, 
came back to Australia, came back to Texas, ate more barbecue, and then started to sort of be, I guess, a barbecue missionary, bringing the gospel back to Australia. And eventually I was, two things happened. One, I was spending so much time traveling back and forth, and two, I had genuinely fallen in love with Texas that I decided to move. So that's how I ended up. And, um, you know, I can't say anything other than I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate that my hard work at knowing the subject that I'm talking about and and the food that I'm producing has um, some people to pay attention because I'm sure that I could have quite easily moved over here and, you know, said, everyone look at me and listen to me, but if you don't have the right thing for people to listen to, they won't. So that's how it all happens. Interesting. That's a very good point that you've got to be saying things that uh, that people are needing to hear. That's um, I think that's I, I think that's lost on a lot of uh, modern social media marketers. <laughs> Hi, it's Dion from the Mid North Coast, New South Wales. Hi, Jess. Uh, my question is, what was the toughest aspect of designing your pits for your signature range? Thanks. Hey, Dion. Uh, that is an excellent question. The toughest aspect was actually just worrying that I was going to leave something out and then worrying that I was going to over the top. So sort of like, um, you know, do I, do I need to just quit now? Quit while I'm ahead. But there wasn't any real tough aspects. I started with a pit that, that a company has been in business for 40 years designing. So I knew the thermodynamics were good. As I mentioned earlier, the only thing I changed was the size of the firebox, which I knew made a tremendous difference to the control that I had over that cooker. Everything else are logical details that as soon as you hear them, you're like, oh, that makes sense. Oh, yeah. So, like, there's a lockbox in there that's long enough to fit a roll of foil or the roll of paper um, that goes on the on the roll for when it's raining that you can put your thermometer in, your thermopen, your, your, your um, gloves, what have you because not all of us have an outdoor kitchen and the smoker might be the standalone unit. So it needs to have everything in there. And you go, oh, that makes a whole lot of sense. I don't know why, don't know why they don't all have that in there. So a lot of it was really just using um, common sense and logic and nothing was too tremendously difficult. So with that um, firebox modification, did you go larger or smaller? Much bigger. I nearly doubled the size of it. Doubled, Wow. And so did that improve efficiency or, or as you said, it was just purely about um, locating the fire within the firebox? Um, it doesn't really change efficiency. The other thing that people don't understand, a lot of people don't understand about offset pits when they're starting off is they see those big propane units um, that, you know, these guys like Aaron Franklin or what have you use. And the thing is, those are easier to run than a tiny backyard unit. Because you just build a whopping big fire and then keep that fire fed at that temperature. When you're dealing with a domestic backyard, especially the smaller they are, the worse they are to deal with, because you have to build a fire to a certain size so that you can keep a coal bed and keep adding to it. But when the smoker is that small, it's often nearly impossible to keep a decent-sized fire without spiking your temperature. So having a big firebox gives the fire room to breathe. You can build the fire closer to the door and further away from the tank um, or from the main barrel. Um, If it's cold, like it is four degrees here right now, I can build the fire as close to the the actual chamber as I can get so that I'm 
being as efficient as possible, but more than anything, it also allows you to link and log or stack that fire properly because you've got a nice, generously sized firebox that, again, isn't choking out the fire, um, which which will let it burn nice and clean. Wow, fascinating. Hi, Jess. This is from someone from Bundaberg. I was wondering if you can remember one of the first things you barbecued successfully and what would be your top tip for making romantic barbecue for two. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. Bronwyn, I had always been taught that pork butt was the easiest thing to start with because you can it, it's very unlikely to get it wrong. Um, but in fact, I found pork ribs were the easiest. Um, they're so forgiving and you kind of can't overcook and they're quick. I mean, you can overcook them, but they'll still be delicious. Um, so I would say pork ribs are the easiest. Just as a side note, one of the things that I've learned through the hard way is I think you start to get a better idea of when something is ready because when you first start to smoke and you think something's ready because you can, it's probe tender, which means you can pu- push a, a knife through or whatever, you'll find that it's still actually tough on the inside and you'll start understanding what real knife-through butter means, that there should be zero resistance. And I think for my first few cooks, I underestimated, you know, out of impatience and and just wanting it to be, willing it to be ready. Um, romantic? Don't know, because I don't know if, I mean, my boyfriend might disagree, but I don't know if a big, um, a big uh, waft of, of smoke is the, the sexiest smell ever. I'm sure actually a lot of people would think that it probably is. <laughs> like when I come in from the pit, just like reeking of smoke, it's like, ooh, you smell like barbecue. But um, yeah, I guess something that you can do together, you know, couples, couples menu that you can share the, the workload with. Very nice. Hi, Jess, this is Matt from Brisbane. I've noted uh, that you've been doing a lot of uh, game, venison-type recipes. Um, what would be your best choice for a low-and-slow um, venison recipe? Thanks. The, there's a lot of venison recipes on my website, and I got really into venison when I moved to Texas because we have a lot of it here. And um, the thing is, there's not very many venison cups that are suited to smoking. There's a few items like the backstrap, um, that you can smoke to medium rare, just like you would a tri-tip. Um, but I have done some work with some smoked stuff as long as you then braise it. So there's a recipe on the website for some smoked braised venison shanks. Um, I've done it with a neck as well where I've just smoked the whole neck and then actually turned it into stock. It's so lean that it can't take the smoke just by itself, but if you want to use it as an element of flavor and then, um, again, apply that braise or sous vide or whatever it is as a gentle cook to really break it all down, you'll do good. Hi, Jess. It's Linda from the Blue Mountains. Um, considering um, me and my partner are involved in barbecue, um, and obviously we're female, just wondering if you have any advice for females who are starting out in the barbecue scene. Thanks. Bye. Um, the way that you should be a female in, in barbecue is not to give a shit that you're female. Just concentrate on being the best cook that you can. It should have nothing to do with men, women, any of that. It should have to do with passion, acumen, ability, um, and just giving it a, a red-hot go. Excellent. I love what you just said there. That's fantastic. Uh, hi, Jess. Uh, it's Paul from Smoking Hot Global Q up in Cairns, North Queensland here. My questions are what, if any uniquely Aussie traits have you noticed emerging? Um, and secondly, what impact 
do you think the Aussie barbecue scene might be having on the American scene? All right. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm not probably in the best position to talk about Aussie traits that are emerging because you guys are much more closer to that than I am. Um, although I have seen, um, I have seen, uh, like for example, Brahmin Hump. But the, when the Aussie started doing that, it started like resonating around the world. The problem with that is Australian Australia has more Brahmin content, like bigger humps. So does Brazil than America. So then the Americans got really excited about it, but they can't find it here. And in fact, it's quite difficult to find in most places in Australia. So that that was sort of something that happened for a little while. Um, as far as the Aussie barbecue scene, I don't think that there'll be any big differences in terms of what's actually being cooked for the reasons that I just mentioned. It's, it's quite difficult, just like you guys have problems with pork ribs in Australia, to emulate because of the difference with raw materials. I think where Australia really has a chance to shine is most um, the competition scene. How that works, how the teams react, how the competitions are staggered. I mean, we're already really giving the Americans a run for their money despite them having been doing this for years and years because we've seen that, you know, even the big... like. I've judged the American Royal before, and the first year that I judged it, um, they sent all the extra volunteers away because they thought they had enough judges, and then they realized they didn't, but they'd already sent the judges away. So they grabbed this volunteer lady who was from the venue, who wasn't a KCBS judge and wasn't trained and sat down at the table to judge the American Royal Invitational. So even a competition as old as that and prestigious as that, you know, still has fallible areas. So the way that the ABA comp, the, the way that ABA sanctioning is done, the way that our competition rules are done, um, the way that we're actually forming, because it's kind of an organic process, new rules all the time, I think that that's where we're going to really stand out. Hi, Jess, it's Paul from Bundaberg. As part of uh, Four Six Seven Zero Barbecue, we started doing master classes in conjunction with Barbecues Galore. Um, but I really want to grow uh, the products that we use and can display and promote uh, to our our class members. How would you suggest I get in touch with companies to send me products so I can review and use in master classes to uh, help them out and help me out? Thank you very much. Hey, Paul, I think that's a great question, and this is a really interesting economy that you're talking about. Um, I think if you wanted to have people, um, if you wanted to start receiving products, the most important thing for you to do is get together, I guess, what you would call a media kit, um, which is a, a PDF or, or an informational piece that basically, if I'm a company and I go to a news, newspaper and say, I want to buy an ad with you, they will give me their stats. So how much it is in circulation, like the breakdown of the areas, the breakdown of their readers, so that I can make an informed decision as the person buying the ad if that's the, the places that I want to reach. Like if I want to make the investment um, and, and those are the metrics and that's fine. So you're effectively asking these companies to send you something for free. It might not be an ad, but you're asking them to, to invest part of their promotional marketing budget in you. So you have to show them why it's worth it. You know, tell them how many classes you do a year. Show them what your social media numbers are. Just get together a document that sells you instead of just a and, – and don't be too casual over email. One of the, my pet peeves are people who just send an Instagram direct message. Like, reach out on Instagram, but then ask for an email address. 
Like, if you're asking for freebies, put in a little bit more effort than a quick DM while you're on the dunny. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Let's be real. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Hi, Ben. It's Michael from Smoking Hot Smartfires. I just want to leave a message for Jess uh, just regarding what is the weirdest thing that you've ever had on a smoker and how can you pick which rubs put on different meats? Is it the same rubs that you use all the time or is it just do you get a feel for what ones to use? And um, really looking forward to catching up with you when we come over to compete with all you guys in Texas. Thank you. Bye. Hey, Michael. I'm looking forward to hosting you over here and showing my my Aussies off proudly to all of uh, my Houston friends. So, first of all, owning a rub company puts you a little bit behind the eight ball because I feel, (laughs) A, I feel indebted to use the rubs that I have created, but B, I've created them because I love them. So, obviously, I'm going to favor them. Um, Most of it is just it depends whether you're cooking for comp or cooking for home. If you're cooking for home, you, you use the rubs that you like the taste of best. It's very, very simple. Um, if you're cooking for comp, you'll start to try and identify the flavor profiles the judges look for and use those instead. Um, and, and that's sort of how you figure out what rubs to use on what product. Uh, hi, my name's Jay, and I'm from Meatstock, and you're listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions. Okie dokie, before we wrap up this episode, Jess, what would be your three top pieces of advice for people with dreams of writing a cookbook of their own? Ooh, um, don't focus on the cookbook itself. Focus on the quality of your content. I don't know if these are three pieces of advice, but I'm going to roll them into one. If you focus too much on things that you can't control – it'll slip out of your hands. It's the old build it and they will come. If you want people to visit your website, don't build the website and then promote the shit out of it. Make amazing content. Create amazing recipes. Take amazing pictures. Give people a reason to want to buy that book, to want to visit that website, to want to look at your Instagram. Focus on the content and if your content is reward worthy, the rewards will come. Very nicely said. Alrighty, Jess, the studio is now all yours. Please take a few minutes to give some shout-outs to the people that helped you along the way and tell the listeners how they can track you down on the internet. Um, I definitely want to thank all um, all the original barbecue teams that are in Australia that have gone on to such amazing things. Those boys who were at that very first Port Mac competition, the people who were even at um, that one back in Melbourne back in the day that was completely unsanctioned and... I know Anthony from Southern Boys was originally there. Um, Jesse Rogers was there, a couple of other guys. Um, there's, I, I appreciate what, what everybody has done for the scene. I have to really, more than anyone, thank Jay and Adam. Uh, what we have done to help each other out, what I've contributed, what they've contributed, as much as what I've done, they've exceeded that. And... I'm just so proud to be part of, you know, a founding member of the ABA with where they've taken it now. Um, and particularly, you know, I owe a big thanks to Jay. If Jay hadn't and I hadn't done those videos way back when, um, that had a lot to do with, with getting me where I am now. So um, there's a, too many individual people that I would want to give a shout-out to, but 
um, thank you to everybody who continues to promote, talk about, and um, get involved with Aussie Barbecue because it takes a community to really get this stuff off the ground and keep the interest in it. Um, and thank you for having me, Ben. And if you want to find me on the internet, my website is jesspiles.com. The rub is hardcorecarnivore.com, and I'm on social media as Jess Piles on everything. So YouTube, Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, and Hardcore Carnivore is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well. Well, Jess, I'd just like to take a moment now just to thank you personally for taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with me about um, your life as an international barbecue personality. I really appreciate the knowledge that you've shared with us, and I know that the listeners have too. So thank you so much. You bet. Thanks for everything that you're doing. It's really awesome that you're telling the story. Well, family, how fascinating was that? Like me, you've been watching Jess's videos and checking out her pictures, but it was incredible to hear what does go on behind the scenes to make it all happen. And the story behind the book, I was hanging on every word. You're probably there already, but just in case you're not, follow Jess Priles on Facebook and Instagram and make sure you grab a copy of her book. I've got mine and it's awesome. So what's next for Smoking Hot Confessions? Well, as you're listening to this, I'm literally in Texas competing at the World's Championship Barbecue Contest. So stay tuned for Season 3, Texas Road Trip. Big thanks and much gratitude go out to this episode's sponsors, Ministry of Smoke, Pitt Brothers Barbecue, and Pure Meats Robina. Their support makes this project possible. I've put their links in the episode description, so please click on through to their sites to claim those awesome offers for you loyal Smoking Hot Confessions listeners. If you have a message you'd like to get out in front of a barbecue mad audience, send me an email directly at ben at smokinghotconfessions.com and let's have a conversation. If you'd like more, I have published a free ebook just for you. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com slash ebooks to get your copy now. I've put a link in the description. Also, head on over to Facebook and join the Smoking Hot Confessions community and let's continue the conversation. It's a group dedicated to teaching, learning, and sharing all about barbecue, and all the BS is left at the door. Everybody has a place in the Smoking Hot Confessions community. Finally, however you listen to this episode, please make sure you subscribe and leave a review. This way, all future episodes will be delivered as far and as wide as Arnold Schwarzenegger's illegitimate love children. Until next time, take care of each other and keep on queuing. Thanks for listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com for recipes, tips, and Ben's own confessions. Yeah.